Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the CLL Society. And we're delighted to have this collaboration. And, and this is a two-part series. So this is part one of a two-part series. And uh, it's called Living with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. And today's program's topic is Update on Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. Um, and today's program, we collaborate with many organizations, the CLL Society being one of our lead organizations. But there are a number of blood cancer organizations as well as cancer organizations that um, have helped to spread the word about the program today. And also, your interest in the program and this topic is really important, of course. And we have over 403 people on the call today. You come from all over the United States. You come from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, so really from all different regions of the country. And we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, a grant fund from Genentech, Gilead, Pharmacyclics LLC, and Jensen Biotech, Inc., and an educational grant from Veristem Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. And we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Daniel Persky. Dr. Persky is Associate Professor of Medicine, Associate Director of Clinical Investigations, Director Clinical Trials Office, University of Arizona Cancer Center, Principal Investigator Lymphoma Research Team. And Dr. Persky will be addressing an overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and current treatment options. It really is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Persky. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and it's a pleasure to speak to you about uh, uh, CLL, uh, which I uh, treat frequently. When I speak to my patients about CLL, I often compare it to diabetes. Um, like diabetes, it's a chronic disease, uh, which is very variable course. Just like with diabetes, there's really bad diabetes, which requires leg amputations. There's also diabetes that's relatively um, less severe and could be controlled with a diet. Uh, also, similarly, there are several aspects of care uh, that uh, your doctor will need to keep up with together with you. So CLL is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and it is another phase of a disease called small lymphocytic lymphoma. And you may ask why, you know, one is leukemia, one is lymphoma. Well, lymphoma and leukemia are old words. Uh, leukemia usually means a cancer of, of cells in blood and bone marrow, while lymphoma means a cancer of cells and lymph nodes. But a white blood cell can go in all of those spaces, and therefore the cancer can come from exactly the same cell. So uh, virtually all patients who start having this disease in their blood eventually will have it in their lymph nodes, and almost all who get it in the lymph, in the lymph nodes eventually go on to have it in blood. So where does CLLSLL come from? Uh, it comes from a lymphocyte, and lymphocyte is a type of white blood cell that fights infections. 
And there are two basic types of lymphocytes. Uh, there are B lymphocytes, also known as B cells, that fight infections by making a variety of antibodies. And antibodies are also known as immunoglobulins. And then there are also T lymphocytes, also known as T cells, that fight infections in different ways. Some are immune controllers and some uh, kill infections more directly. So 85% of all cancers of lymphocytes come from B lymphocytes, as does CLL. So because CLL, SLL comes from B lymphocytes, it still has the ability that normal B lymphocytes have to make antibodies except those antibodies are not of different types, uh, but are of the same type, so that is called monoclonal. And they don't actually help you fight infections, but may actually hurt. So one thing these antibodies uh, that are made by CLSL can do, uh, they can bind your own red blood cells, and less commonly platelets, and cause your own immune system to recognize them as foreign and kill them. So that is called autoimmune anemia, uh, and anemia means um, a low number of red blood cells, and autoimmune thrombocytopenia. And thrombocytopenia means low number of platelets. Um, in the course of uh, patient's history, there's often a problem that develops making um, uh, one's own antibodies, and that uh, can cause a problem with higher frequency of infections, particularly upper respiratory infections, such as sinusitis, bronchitis, and pneumonias. And if we find that uh, patients have uh, a low antibody production in such cases, which we can check by blood test, we can give pooled antibodies, either through the vein or under the skin, which may help to reduce the frequency of infections. This is also the reason why it's important to uh, keep up to date with your influenza and pneumonia uh, vaccinations. Uh, we also think that there is an immune defect, um, either from CLL itself or from immunosuppressive treatments given uh, for CLL, uh, which seems to cause a higher risk of uh, common cancers in CLL patients. And these are can cancers such as lung cancer and skin cancer, um, both melanoma and non-melanoma types of skin cancer, but also colon, breast, and prostate, common cancers. So it's very important to be up to date with preventive care. Uh, and, and aside that I just want to mention, we also see that patients uh, uh, with CLL have an exaggerated uh, response to mosquito bites, or so sometimes have mosquito bite-like rashes without remembering uh, actually being bitten by a mosquito. And we don't generally treat them any differently than uh, such rashes in non-CLL patients. So now that you know a little bit about biology, let's talk a bit about basic statistics. So there are about 20 to 21,000 Americans projected to be diagnosed this year with CLL-SLL. But since uh, patients on average live a long time with CLL-SLL, there's probably over a quarter million Americans living with this disease. It does occur generally in older patients, typically in late 60s, but I have personally diagnosed it in patients as young as 29. Perhaps this has to do something with uh, um, how we do our blood tests more routinely now. Uh, the cause of CLL is unclear, but just like with many other cancers of lymphocytes, uh, having problems with the immune system certainly contributes to it. Uh, there's always a question about genetic risk. Um, in, in this regard, this, is disease, this disease is different. For example, in breast cancer, there's a specific gene that causes a certain uh, you know, probability of uh, having breast cancer, ovarian cancer. There's no such gene in CLL. 
We do see an increase in first-degree family members, though, of uh, CLL or similar cancers. So that would be father, mother, sister, brother, kids. There may be some shared risk in immune systems. Um, and, uh, you know, the toxic exposures, such as pesticides, herbicides, benzene solvents, they have been associated with higher risk of CLL and other lymphoid cancers in some studies, but it's very hard to know if they actually cause them. So familial and you know, other risks are actively investigated. Considering that there is no specific gene, that the risk in families is really not great in terms of raw numbers, and that CLL gets you know, monitored until it needs treatment, there's really no screening strategy for uh, CLL. So how does CLL present? Most commonly nowadays, CLL gets diagnosed when the doctor gets uh, blood counts on the patient and sees there's a higher number of lymphocytes than normal. And then they typically do follow-up blood tests called uh, flow cytometry, which types the lymphocytes and uh, finds that there's a particular pattern of surface tags or markers uh, that fits the profile of CLL cells, and that is called immunophenotyping. Uh, in a few cases, uh, it can present with uh, enlarged lymph nodes, and then uh, lymph node uh, is biopsied and would show the same kind of uh, uh, immunophenotype or profile. And the lymph nodes can often wax and wane, meaning they can shrink by themselves and then regrow. Sometimes it's a period of a uh, few days, sometimes it's actually a few weeks or even a few months. It is rare for CLL to present with systemic or what we call sometimes B symptoms. Uh, those are persistent fevers of 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit or greater without explanation. And the usual explanation for fevers would be infection. Uh, drenching night sweats, which means soaking bed sheets or requiring uh, changes of clothes without explanation, such as, you know, a warm blanket or high temperature uh, in the room. Uh, or unwanted weight loss of 10% or more. However, systemic symptoms are much more common in cases where CLL transforms to an aggressive lymphoma, which is called Richter transformation, and that does require urgent treatment. So it's important to bring such persistent symptoms to your doctor's attention. CLL eventually goes to spleen, which is part of uh, a lymph system. It's an organ in your stomach. And it can cause, can cause it to enlarge, and the doctor uh, usually examines uh, your stomach to see how large the spleen and the liver are. And enlargement of spleen can cause platelets and occasionally red cells to pool in it, which can cause the platelet count in your blood to be lower. But it's viewed differently than if it was from autoimmune destruction or if there were too many CLL cells in the bone marrow causing problems with blood count production. So these are kind of three main reasons why CLL patients may have drops in their blood counts. Uh, patients often ask me, uh, can CLL go to organ X? And the answer is almost always yes, because these cells can travel and they can go to most places in the body. An important issue to bring up for you is that anytime uh, someone does a biopsy on CLL patient, and the pathologist will see CLL uh, cells in the blood vessels and may say that it's uh, involved by CLL, which actually scares other doctors. Uh, generally, we expect to find CLL cells uh, in the blood vessels, so that shouldn't be a concern. CLL can infiltrate uh, organs outside uh, of the blood vessels, but uh, it doesn't commonly cause problems with the function of those organs. So what do we do in terms of the workup? 
if you already have low blood counts, you know, uh, when we discussed how um, uh, they can be low for several reasons, um, we discussed flow cytometry. So flow cytometry, um, which types of cells, uh, will show you if there are at least 5,000 B cells, and if they're mono, uh, some of them are monoclonal and have the right CLL phenotype, it's technically called CLL, and it technically needs to be there for at least three months. If it's less than that, and there's a lymph node or another organ involved by CLL uh, or SLL phenotype, it's called SLL. If it's less than 5,000 B cells, uh, and then there's no lymph node enlargement, and other uh, blood counts are fine. It's called CLL-like monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, which is a pre-malignant condition, which may or may not be eventually become CLL. There's also a rare circumstance where there are fewer than 5,000 abnormal cells, yet there's already a drop in uh, red blood cells or platelets. And if a bone marrow biopsy shows CLL cells, uh, it's called CLL. And it's probably the main reason at this point to get a bone marrow biopsy, which is no longer routinely done in diagnosis. Uh, there's also peripheral blood smear, which is uh, when a hematopathologist, which is a kind of pathologist that specializes in diagnosing blood diseases, looks at the blood cells under the microscope. So CLL cells typically are small. Mature-looking means they kind of look relatively normal. Uh, and their lymphocytes. And often they see smudge cells, uh, which happens because CLL cells are more fragile and they can break up uh, under a glass slide and then smudge. There's sometimes larger cells that they see called prolymphocytes, and the hematopathologist would usually say what percent they are out of total lymphocytes, because if you have a higher percent, like over 10%, it's not considered to be as good. I usually check uh, patients' uh, antibody production in a blood test to assess the risk for autoimmune anemia called direct uh, antigobulin test, also known as DAT or direct Coombs. I do a couple of blood tests, which are probably fairly weak markers, but uh, I check them, uh, such as beta-2 microglobulin and LDH. I check basic kidney and liver function and generally make sure that there are no infections. Um, I also tend to draw some prognostic blood tests. Um, they're probably more important uh, to be done before a decision to treat is made, but uh, sometimes it helps to know baseline what's going on. Uh, so some of these are CD38, which is part of flow cytometry, so typically a um, uh, doctor would see them anyway. Uh, there's ZAP70, which kind of has lately been falling out of favor. Uh, there is something called a FISH panel for CLL, which basically looks for chromosome mutations in CLL cells. Uh, and uh, uh, then there's immunoglobulin heavy chain variable region gene mutation status, or IGHV for short. Uh, which is also thought to be prognostic. Patients often ask me, do you need scans? And generally not routinely. I consider scans in uh, patients who present with SLL, or if I have reasons to suspect that there are a lot of lymph nodes in the, in the stomach cavity, which tends to correlate with a particular type of uh, chromosome change in CLL called 11Q deletion. Staging um, is typically uh, either Rye or Binet staging. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar, and I personally use uh, RI staging, and it's a clinical stage that doesn't require scans. So RI is uh, stage zero is just increased lymphocytes. One is enlarged lymph nodes. Two is enlarged spleen. Uh, 
three is anemia with, uh, say, a low hemoglobin, and four is thrombocytopenia with uh, platelets under 100. And they're typically grouped in three groups, where one and two, and then three and four grouped together. So I touched a little bit upon prognosis. So, you know, ZAP70, CD38, IGHV, uh, the fish, beta-2 microglobulin. People also use occasional lymphocyte doubling time. I would have to say that in light of new treatments, the prognostic information of these is much less clear uh, because a lot of the newer treatments um, have erased the significance of these. Um, I would say probably uh, 17P deletion uh, where critical immune suppressor gene uh, TP53 is located is still clearly pretty important and prognostic. Uh, people look in more kind of newer molecular mutations, um, NOTCH1, SF3B1, and others. And there are also prognostic indices which combine different testing factors, uh, such as CLL-IPI, which takes that uh, immune suppressor gene into consideration, uh, IGHV mutation status, uh, stage, beta-2 microglobulin, age over 65. So when do you treat patients? Uh, the criteria for treatment are somewhat flexible. They include such things as uh, systemic symptoms. Uh, in CLL, that also includes uh, significant fatigue, where a person is uh, completely unable to function. In large lymph nodes, the spleen that cause discomfort or disrupt function of important organs, either by pushing or less commonly kind of infiltrating. Uh, anemia or thrombocytopenia due to, you know, invasion of the bone marrow to an extent that prevents good uh, blood cell production, as opposed to autoimmune destruction or uh, blood cell spooling in the spleen. And um, typically those um, blood counts have to be uh, lower consistently because occasional fluctuations. Um, autoimmune destruction of uh, red cells or platelets that is not controlled by uh, corticosteroids. Frequent infections and low antibody production that are not helped by antibody infusions. There's also a general kind of factor for progressive disease where we feel that the lymph nodes are growing fairly quickly or if lymphocyte uh, count doubles in less than six months. Uh, high lymphocyte count by itself is not a reason to start treatment, although it does scare other doctors. We do get a little bit more cautious when um, the lymphocyte count is over 200,000 because it can occasionally lead to uh, issues with blood thickening. Uh, treatment options, um, you know, they're really changing and uh, changing very quickly. Uh, there have been uh, major practice-changing trials reported at American Society of Hematology last December, and the chemotherapy is falling out of favor. Uh, where it retains a foothold right now is probably in favorable risk younger patients, uh, but even that is being examined. And the preference is now towards targeted agents such as a, a BTK inhibitor or brutinib, which is a pill. And I will leave it to Dr. Shadman to discuss more details about uh, treatment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Presky. That was really wonderful, wonderfully informative and comprehensive. Um, and, uh, and so thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Maziar Shadman. Dr. Shadman is Assistant Member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Assistant Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington School of Medicine. And Dr. Um, uh, Shadman is going to be addressing new and emerging treatment approaches and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shadman. Thank you, Dr. Missner. It's a pleasure to be here, and 
I wanted to touch base on some of the principles of uh, treatment for CRL. My colleague, Dr. Persky, uh, really uh, gave a great introduction to this phase of our program here. So a, a very common question that I'm asked by my patients is, of course, uh, when it's time for treatment, what is the best treatment for CLL? And my answer is always the fact that this is an impossible question to answer without having information about three major factors. I really put it in three categories because it has to do with disease characteristics, so we need to know what kind of CLL you're dealing with, and that's, of course, uh, some of the clinical information and genetic information that Dr. Persky mentioned. Uh, some of the mutations, some of the chromosome changes, uh, even some of the clinical features of CLR, CLL are <clears throat> very important in making that clinical decision about what is the best treatment option for the patient. Uh, the second factor is uh, patient factor. Uh, what other medical conditions uh, are patients dealing with? And, of course, CLL is a disease of patients with an average age of somewhere between 68 and 70. It's not uncommon to have other medical issues. And uh, talking about treatment options, of course, we have to make sure that by introducing a new treatment, we are not making those medical issues worse. So really thinking about side effects of medications and uh, possible effect on uh, comorbidities that patients already have. And the third factor uh, uh, is, is treatment, uh, basically, characteristics. You know, these treatments are now very different. Uh, in the past uh, five, six, seven years, we have moved from chemoimmunotherapy as being the main and only treatment option for CLL. Uh, over time, we had access to some of these novel options. And uh, for a while, we had both options, and we would discuss uh, novel therapies versus chemotherapy with the patient. The past six months, I would say, uh, with a number of clinical trials showing uh, uh, overall advantage of some of these novel agents compared to chemotherapy, we are kind of entering this chemotherapy-free uh, era. And uh, But these treatments are very different in terms of duration of treatment, in terms of form of treatment. Some of them are tablets or pills that patients take. Some of them are infusional. And really, it has to do with the quality of life with patients who work, and they want to make sure that they're able to continue working while receiving treatment. So really, the discussion has to be on the basis of disease characteristics, patient characteristics, and treatment characteristics. And that's how we come up with a treatment strategy for CLO patients. Uh, again, we have many options for CLL. Sometimes the answer is clear when there are clinical trials that have compared these treatments head-to-head -head and one treatment comes out as the preferred regimen or treatment. You know, we have that. We, some of these treatments are compared or have been compared to each other on a head-to-head -head basis. But for some others, we don't have that information. Uh, simply, there are many great options for a lot of CLL patients, and it's really the discussion about the pros and cons and kind of coming, coming up with the right treatment. In terms of where we are going uh, with, with the novel treatments and clinical trials, uh, again, I, I would put it in four categories in terms of the type of clinical trials that we're dealing with. Number one, we have novel agents. They're great. They, they're very effective in treating CLL and 
taking care of CLL uh, cells, they come with side effects. So there is a lot of effort to make these drugs better, meaning that if we have a great drug like ibrutinib, which works very well on CLL but may have side effects, it would be great to come up with next generations of ibrutinib that are hopefully as effective as ibrutinib but come with fewer side effects. So that's one area of research in the CLL field these days, to come up with the newer versions of these great drugs. Uh, the second area is to see if by combining these new drugs, we can have even better results. Uh, you know you know the names of these new drugs, ibrutinib or venetoclax, some of the monoclonal antibodies like obinutuzumab or rituximab, uh, some of the PI3 kinase inhibitors. So really there is a lot of effort in trying to see by combining these treatments, number one, can we change the duration of treatment from indefinite to a fixed duration of treatment? And number two, maybe we can uh, induce such deep remissions that our patients can be treatment-free and disease-free for a long time. So that those are there are many clinical trials that are ongoing in trying to address this question. The third category is really for high-risk CLL patients and trying to use some of very novel treatment approaches to CLL, and that would be immunotherapy, and for example, CAR T-cell or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Uh, this is a treatment method where we uh, kind of teach the immune system of each patient to attack the CLL cells. And that's done by genetically modifying these T cells and uh, kind of reinfusing those T cells back to the patient. As you can imagine, uh, there are many details and complexities to this type of treatment, but there are national studies and the different institutions uh, in the country are involved in, in these type of treatments to really help CLL patients with high-risk disease. The last and fourth uh, type of trial, and maybe I should say a major one in the U.S., and my colleague, Dr. Stevens, is on the line. Uh, Dr. Persky mentioned that for CLL patients, we don't, of course, necessarily offer treatment at the time of diagnosis. We have to wait until there is a reason for treatment. And the reason for this recommendation is the fact that in the past and in the era of chemotherapy, we have tried and we learned that there is really no benefit of giving patients chemotherapy right at the time of diagnosis compared to waiting until there's a reason for treatment. We're not really helping patients and sometimes we're causing more side effects. A very great question that patients ask on a weekly basis is that now that you have access to these new drugs, we may be having a different result if we try these novel agents upfront, maybe early after diagnosis, especially for patients with high-risk disease. And again, there is uh, there are a number of studies and um, specifically, study that is um, will be done hopefully led by Dr. Stevens and I'm sure she can talk more about it to really see if we can benefit our patients with high-risk disease uh, and offer them treatment early on shortly after diagnosis instead of waiting longer. So a lot of uh, effort is going on and you know we have had great advancements in the past uh, I would say 10 years plus but we really started seeing these drugs coming to clinical practice in the past uh, since uh, uh, I would say 2000 uh, I would say in the past five six seven years but we are 
not stopping and, again, trying to make those drugs even better, trying to combine them together, trying to introduce a new, a new method of treatment, that's immunotherapy, trying to use treatments earlier than uh, standard, and maybe we can uh, show that by treating patients earlier, we can, we can improve their uh, outcomes. So uh, with that, I think uh, I would wait to uh, see if there are questions about treatment, and I will be more specific about that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shadman. That was really um, excellent, uh, very outstanding, and, and I know there are questions for you during the Q&A, but I'm very, very comprehensive. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Deborah Stevens. Um, Dr. Stevens is um, Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Department of Internal Medicine, Physician Leader, Hematology Clinical Trials Research Group, Consumman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. And um, Ms. Stevens will be addressing tips to manage symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team, including your quality of life concerns. And it also sounds like there's another topic that Dr. Stadman had alluded to that you may want to address as well. So it's with great pleasure that I turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stevens. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thanks uh, for all of you to joining this teleconference today. Uh, my portion of the talk is going to focus more on quality of life and the day-to-day -day living for patients with CLL. There are a lot of topics. I only have time to focus on a few, so happy to answer questions at the end um, of this uh, teleconference. During my uh, topic, I would like to discuss some uh, key treatment-related side effects and tips to manage these side effects. I also want to pull it back to just general CLL and the day-to-day CLL-related symptoms and tips to manage these symptoms. And then I just want to highlight some key questions to ask your healthcare team about these topics. As far as treatment and treatment-related side effects, um, as Drs. Persky and Shadman have alluded to, a lot of our treatments are moving towards oral pills. Um, and the most common and, and newest versions of these pills are two drugs named ibrutinib and venetoclax. And today I really just want to focus on some key important side effects of these treatments, as these are a lot of decisions patients have to make uh, between um, what kind of side effects are tolerable on a day-to-day -day basis. First of all, with ibrutinib, I like to group these side effects into symptoms that occur early on therapy and those that can occur at any time during therapy. So symptoms that I typically see that occur early, the most common that I see are diarrhea and joint pains and muscle cramps. As far as the diarrhea, this is really defined as four or more loose bowel movements during 24-hour period. If this happens to you while you're on ibrutinib, you should notify your doctor. They should evaluate and make sure there's no infection, um, as this, of course, would be treated differently. As long as there is no infection, you can use um, agents such as Imodium or other um, agents to slow down the stool. Again, this typically occurs early, and within the first couple of months of therapy, this side effect can even just resolve on its own. The next most common thing that I see and I hear uh, my patients talk about are joint pains and muscle cramps. Um, this can happen very early on treatment and typically does get better over time. Uh, while we're waiting on these side effects to cool off over time, um, Tylenol is often very effective. Um, if people have severe pains, uh, sometimes I use a short course of oral steroids to manage this, these side effects. 
Um, this has not been studied, but I have several patients tell me that magnesium supplements can help with this side effect. Um, uh, that is also to be used with caution as diarrhea is one side effect of magnesium supplements. Um, but these are things that you should talk to your doctor about if you experience um, early on ibrutinib therapy because um, this therapy is actually intended to be taken long term. And it, sometimes we just need to get you through that first couple of months on therapy um, and, and so that you can uh, reap the benefits of this drug. Some other important side effects that can occur anytime while you're on ibrutinib uh, that I want to highlight, there are three of them, and they're atrial fibrillation, bleeding and bruising, and high blood pressure. Uh, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that happens in about 6% of patients that receive ibrutinib therapy. Patients might notice symptoms of this. You might feel your heart is beating um, in an abnormal rhythm or not regularly. Um, this should absolutely be evaluated by your doctor, as some patients may need blood thinners uh, in order to prevent having a stroke because of this condition. The next side effect that can occur at any time is a higher tendency for bleeding and bruising. This is really important. As um, I mentioned, this drug is meant to be taken long-term. So if you're having uh, some sort of uh, surgical procedure, you need to notify your doctor so they can uh, instruct you on how many days before or after the procedure to hold your ibrutinib to limit that risk of bleeding. And the last side effect um, that is becoming more commonly recognized is high blood pressure. And we've seen this in around 25% of people that take ibrutinib. Uh, your doctor should be monitoring your blood pressure at each of your visits, um, and sometimes patients actually need to be put on blood pressure-lowering medications while they're on ibrutinib. So those are the main um, side effects that can occur early or at any time during um, your ibrutinib therapy. Um, with these, you may need to hold your drug or reduce the dose. However, this should not be done without your doctor's instructions uh, because sometimes your CLL can actually progress very quickly if you stop this medication. And also, starting and stopping the medication can lead to um, your cancer not responding to ibrutinib as well. So those are the major side effects that I want to discuss with ibrutinib. Um, venetoclax is the next medication that I think should be specifically highlighted. Um, it was recently approved for all patients with CLL, and so this drug is going to become more commonly used. The biggest side effect and most worrisome side effect actually comes in the first month uh, while you're on the therapy. And this is something called tumor lysis syndrome. And basically that means when the cancer cells break down and they release all their waste products out into your bloodstream. These uh, can be toxic to the kidneys and actually can be life-threatening if not monitored. Uh, the risk is determined by how high your white blood cell count is and how big are your lymph nodes. And so there are several things that your doctor can do to prevent you from getting this side effect, which is called tumor lysis syndrome. They're going to encourage you to increase your fluid intake, so lots of water. There are medications such as allopurinol uh, that help to prevent um, this side effect um, from doing any damage to the kidneys. Um, and if you're at high risk, you may actually need to be admitted to the hospital for the first um, dose of the therapy. This is typically not a risk after the first month of therapy, so it's really very important up front. Um, later on in therapy, most people tolerate venetoclax quite well. The thing that I notice most often is having low blood counts, and your doctor will monitor for this by doing periodic blood checks. And again, this is a, a, 
a treatment that you may need to hold the drug or to reduce the dose of it, but this should not be done without your doctor's specific instructions. And I always tell my patients with these and any other side effects, if, um, if I don't know that you're having the side effects, I can't do anything to help you manage them. And so these are things that you really should be aware of. Um, or if anything new pops up while you're on these drugs, you really should let your doctor know so they can determine whether or not it might be a side effect of your treatment. Those are the main topics I wanted to cover with uh, in regards to treatment-related side effects. And I wanted to pull back and just talk a little bit more about CLL-related symptoms. And uh, Dr. Persky did cover this uh, a bit during his portion of the talk, but I wanted to kind of specifically address a few things. Um, these are symptoms that you should be aware of and you should report to your doctor. These are symptoms that your doctor should be asking you about at your appointments. And those include fevers when you're not having an infection, night sweats that are drenching, and I mean drenching through your pillowcases, your night clothes, um, unplanned weight loss, and that specifically counts as 10% of your body weight in a six-month period of time. Um, sometimes people can develop spleen, uh, pain in the spleen, which is in the upper left um, area of your abdomen. This can also lead to feeling like you're full really quickly um, after eating. And sometimes people can develop pain in their lymph nodes, um, which sometimes this is internal and you can't see on the outside why there's pain there. So for these specific symptoms, fevers, night sweats, weight loss, pain in the spleen or lymph nodes, if your doctor cannot find another cause for these, these are uh, conditions that we would recommend treatment of your CLL, and that's the best way to actually make these symptoms resolve. I wanted to take a moment to highlight one really important side effect uh, uh, and symptom of CLL, and that is fatigue. And the reason why I say it is important, it's probably the most common thing that my patients talk to me about. About half to three quarters of CLL patients have it when we do studies um, uh, to determine um, if the symptom is present in the patient. Um, but it's a really difficult symptom because it's not very specific and there are many other causes of fatigue. And so I have four steps for you if you're having fatigue um, that you can go through and maybe try to find some help for this fatigue. So step one, I would discuss it with your doctor um, because they may be able to give you um, important tips to, um, to help you with this fatigue. Step two, uh, your doctor should be ruling out other causes. So there are other common conditions that are easily correctable, such as um, checking your thyroid, your testosterone levels, B12 levels, you know, looking at your general labs for kidney or liver disease, and actually evaluating you for anxiety or depression. Because many patients with uh, CLL or any other type of cancers can have depression or anxiety related to their disease that can increase their level of fatigue. So after you've discussed with your doctor and ruled out other causes, the step three is actually lifestyle modifications. And I think the biggest thing that patients can do to help um, with this fatigue is actually to exercise. And that might sound counterintuitive. You might say, oh, that might make me feel more tired. But actually, it's scientifically proven to improve fatigue. Um, and I typically recommend about 30 minutes of uh, exercise or more on uh, four or more days of the week. You should also look um, at your sleep habits. Make sure that you're sleeping seven uh, or more hours a night that's uninterrupted, um, and pay attention to your diet. There's no specific diet for CLL patients, but it's really just the same diet that would help you with heart disease or diabetes, and that, you know, low-processed sugars, um, you know, avoiding greasy, fatty um, foods. 
Um, and so after you've discussed with your doctor, you've ruled out other causes, and you've modified your lifestyle, the next step um, is probably uh, the last and a little bit more aggressive step. Um, and you need to talk with your doctor of, is this the appropriate time to start treatment for your CLL to relieve the fatigue? Or um, could your doctor help you or refer you to a supportive oncology specialist? Um, we have a whole supportive oncology um, team at the University of Utah that helps uh, patients manage side effects. Um, there have been no proven medications um, uh, in clinical trials that improve the side effects. Uh, there, are, there is some thought that medications for uh, sleep disorders like narcolepsy or attention deficit disorders um, may help, and there's a little bit of study with Jacophy, which is a medicine used for another kind of blood disorder. However, some of these medications are addictive and really should be managed by a professional. Um, and so the, the last point I want to make um, is just key questions to ask um, your healthcare team. Um, whenever you're starting a new treatment, you want to ask what side effects might I expect and how long is the treatment? Because sometimes people can deal with side effects if they um, know that they have a limited period of time, they have to deal with them. Or sometimes the, in the case of ibrutinib, the treatment is long-term. And so if it's a side effect, you can't uh, manage um, uh, the effects of, you may need to um, switch therapies. And lastly, if you're starting a new um, drug, you should always ask your doctor if there are any clinical trials available. And if not, um, if you can be referred to a center so you can get a consultation for clinical trials. Uh, because I think that, you know, the fact is we still don't have a cure for CLL and clinical trials is, is the way we're going to solve that problem. The other uh, portion of my talk talked about people who are watch and wait or not in treatment period. Um, and uh, the key things that you want to know are what symptoms are important to report. Um, you want to ask your doctor how you can contact the office if you have a problem earlier than a scheduled visit and if they have any supportive oncology services. And Dr. Shabman actually mentioned that one of my areas of interest is looking at, you know, with these brand new therapies that have shown a lot of uh, promise and have fewer side effects than our old therapies, is it possible um, that early treatment with some of these drugs um, could help to improve quality of life or even survival in patients. Um, this is a clinical trial that will be run by the SWOG group, um, and it probably won't be available um, for another year yet, but it's something to think about, something that might be available in the future. Um, and that will conclude um, the topics that I wanted to cover today. So thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Stevens. That was really wonderful and um, just really very helpful, I think, to everybody on the call and uh, just to... Uh, um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and just but very uh, thoughtfully presented. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Patty Kaufman. Uh, Ms. Kaufman is the uh, co-founder and uh, executive director of the CLL Society, Inc., and they are, a, um, they are a partner of ours on this particular program. And so, and um, Ms. Kaufman is going to be addressing CLL Society's free programs and services. And if you're not familiar with them, they just offer just a host of wonderful services for all of you on the call. So um, I'm going to, it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman. The CLL Society is here to help. The CLL Society is CLL-specific. 
We are laser-focused on CLL. Our website provides tools enabling you to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL, to develop a deep knowledge of the CLL treatment landscape, and to bring you into a community where having CLL is a normal part of everyday life. Our website features conference coverage and breaking news on topics important to CLL patients and their caregivers, especially if you are newly diagnosed, please come to our website. As there is a proven survival advantage to being in the care of a CLL expert, please check out our Expert Access program. Expert Access is a free service designed to provide those with a CLL diagnosis who are not seeing a CLL expert an opportunity to spend 30 minutes in a no-cost, HIPAA-compliant, online, face-to-face consultation with a CLL expert who will assess their CLL-related medical records and address their three most pressing questions. A written consultation summary will provide you with talking points to share with your current healthcare provider. Expert Access will serve 150 patients this year, so sign up sooner rather than later as this program is finite. Our quarterly newsletter, the CLL Tribune, features original articles contributed by patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers, as well as regular columns titled Ask the CLL Expert, Ask the Pharmacist, Ask the Laboratory Scientist. The occasional poem, work of art, song, etc. will appear in future issues, and we invite you to contribute to the CLL Tribune. We are now introducing four new online interactive webinars on topics of critical interest to CLL patients and their caregivers, which begin in June. Topics to be covered are the financial toxicity of CLL, dealing with the CLL emotional roller coaster, end-of-life, hospice, and palliative care, and we are hoping to devote our final 2019 webinar to the unique concerns of military veterans with CLL. Our 30-plus patient support groups meet mostly monthly across the country, and they offer support, education, and companionship, so don't go it alone. Check out our website for one near you. So there you have it, support groups, tools, webinars, forums, breaking news, and much more. If you have questions, contact the CLL Society at support at CLLsociety.org. Now I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kaufman. That was really wonderful. And actually, I do want to again highlight the expert access program that they have. It's just wonderful. And um, do take advantage of all of their services. It's just a wonderful resource. And it's actually the only nonprofit organization that actually specializes only on CLL. So it's kind of a really, it, it is a, um, a go-to place for everyone on the call, absolutely. Well, now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board and um, also to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your questions, I'll let you know how to get them answered. <laughs> okay. So um, Norma? Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, So I'm going to start with that one. I'm going to ask... um, um, Dr. Stevens, if you could address this question. Um, what are the risks of CL treatments with um, comorbid DDT and PE? Um, that's a really good question. Um, and the fact is that just CLL, having CLL it's yourself can cause you to be a higher risk of DVT or PE. 
um, and along with those conditions requires blood thinning. Um, the biggest um, one of uh, the newer therapies that there's an area of concern is ibrutinib. As I, as I mentioned, it does increase your risk of bleeding. So if you have to be on a blood thinner along with ibrutinib, that can lead to a really high risk of bleeding and needs to be managed and addressed um, by your doctor. Um, the other, you know, kind of more standard chemotherapy drugs we didn't talk about uh, too much today, like uh, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, bendamustine, all of these also um, cause your blood counts to drop, and that includes your platelets, which help your blood to clot. Um, and so if you don't have enough platelets, it's hard to clot your blood. You have to be on a blood thinner uh, because if you have a DVT or a PE, um, you have to really watch your blood counts and make sure um, uh, that you're holding your blood thinner when your blood counts are too low to be on it to protect your bleeding risk. But I think that's a very complicated um, problem, and definitely um, your cancer doctor should be highly involved in helping with the management of that and selecting the right therapy for you. Thank you. Um, and uh, thank you very much. And um, there's another question um, uh, from one of our um, one of our online participants, um, and I'm going to ask a question for Dr. Shadman. Given this, that CLL increases the likelihood of secondary cancers, would it be advantageous to start treatment for CLL sooner rather than later? If you could address that, Dr. Shadman, in yeah, that general so, way, of course. Sure. So this is a great question. So the short answer is that we don't know if starting treatment earlier would uh, really decrease that possibility of having a secondary cancer. So there are risks that come with CLL just regardless of treatment, and uh, so there are types of cancer that are more common. Uh, you know, it, I should also mention that, you know, specifically talking about chemoimmunotherapy regimens, there are cancers that can be resulted as a result of treatment, for example. So uh, a type of chemoimmunotherapy that we used to use much uh, more often in the past, the FCR regimen, for example, is known to cause uh, leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome over time. So, uh, of course, I mean, we're using it less and less. And with the novel agents, uh, drugs like ibrutinib, uh, we now have a relatively long follow-up, and we're relatively confident that we're not seeing a signal showing an increased risk of secondary malignancies. But in general, for any of the novel drugs, one of the most important questions in the field of CLL and one of the most important research questions is, yes, we're treating CLL, but is this new drug safe in the long follow-up, and is it causing secondary cancers or not? But again, going back to the specific question that was asked, um, there is no data showing that starting treatment earlier decreases that risk of secondary malignancy. But we have to be careful about some of these treatments causing a secondary cancer as well. Thank you, thank you. And Dr. Persky, a question for you. Um, and this is sort of to normalize the experience. Um, I was just diagnosed with CLL. Will I be able to work, exercise, and perform my usual activities? Um, most patients, way. right, right, right. Oh, I mean, this is uh, something that your doctor and you should uh, discuss. And uh, just like Dr. Shabman mentioned, that uh, you need uh, to kind of uh, have an assessment of whether you actually need treatment at this point in time, if CLL is causing you any symptoms. Um, if, you know, there are no reasons to start treatment uh, and you're doing well, 
which in my practice is probably the majority of patients at diagnosis, um, you can very likely maintain good quality of life and do most of the things you want to do. Um, so uh, generally speaking, against you know, it depends on specific factors, but most patients maintain themselves. And then just like Dr. Stevens said, exercise would probably be beneficial um, for you, particularly if you have uh, fatigue. Thank you. Um, and a question um, uh, for um, Dr. Shadman. Um, I read the exposure to Agent Orange increases the risk of CLL. I'm a Vietnam war veteran. Should I get tested for CLL? Uh, well, it is true that the VA uh, recognizes Agent Orange as a potential risk factor for CLL. Uh, I would say being tested for CLL simply means that, uh, you know, having a, a blood count, for example, looking for looking at the lymphocyte count. And I think that is a general recommendation in, for, for everybody to be uh, tested once a year as part of the annual physical exam. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to consider going more aggressive than that. And for example, doing tests like doing a CT scan or a CAT scan, or for example, looking uh, using imaging to look for enlarged lymph nodes, that is not recommended. But uh, a simple uh, blood count check is something that everybody should have. And I would just leave it at that level and not more than that. Thank you. And um, last question for Dr. Stevens. Um, is the new shingles vaccine, Shingrix, recommended for those with CLL who already have the Zostavax vaccine, vaccination? So that is actually a very good question, uh, and there are a lot of um, CLL experts actually talking about exactly that question. Um, we do not have any trials yet in CLL patients, and so we don't know how well it works for CLL patients yet. Um, and we don't know exactly the safety of the vaccination. So we can't put a firm uh, recommendation, but in general, the vaccine is approved for all patients over the age of 50. It is approved in patients who have already had the Zostavax. Um, and so a lot of my patients have been getting um, this uh, vaccination. At this time, I don't think we have enough um, information to recommend firmly for it or against it. Excellent. So that would be the discussion to have with their healthcare team. I guess that would be a, a good question to yeah. ask your healthcare team. And it, it, it is an inactivated virus, so it isn't a live uh, uh, virus vaccine. And so, um, in theory, it should be more, it should be safer than the Zostavax. But again, we don't have studies to prove that at this time. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You know, you've been really. Wonderful. I and mean, we could go on for another hour or so of questions and things like that, but I, we did say this would be an hour program. And so I do want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, I have to say, with a great team. And I also want to thank those of you who asked questions. Um, and I also want to uh, thank all of you who have been listening as well. Now, I know that there are still questions, and I had said that um, we would, if we didn't get your question, I would help you to figure out what to do about them. So the first thing, of course, with any question, even if you asked a question today, for those of you who did ask questions today, 
please take the and all the information you've learned today, please take them back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best, of course. They know everything about you. And so therefore, absolutely, you know, do talk to your healthcare team about what you've learned. They they have all your records, they know you very well. In addition, I do recommend that you contact the CLL Society um, because they are, of course, their whole focus is on and CLL, that's their main focus. And then there are many other blood cancer organizations that you can contact, many of them at Household Words, um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, um, you know, um, the um, uh, just uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation. There are just so many organizations out there, and we've listed them. And when you get your evaluation, there will be a whole list of other resources that you can contact, the American Cancer Society. So for medical information that you'd like to get from credible sources, and we do recommend really going to well-vetted, credible resources. But I, I can't say enough about the CLL Society, and please take advantage of their expert access. It's always nice to get that opinion and to contact them for that. Um, and also, um, you know, um, there is a part two to this series, so I guess I should mention that. Um, and the part two is current perspectives on the treatment of relapsed refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So that's going to happen on June 20th, so you probably all know about that, but nevertheless, I'll mention that to you as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with CLL or any type of um, hematologic cancer or cancer in general. I want you to now know that you are in a neighborhood or, or in a community of support here. Um, there are a lot of organizations out there to help you, and it doesn't mean that you won't sometimes feel alone, but just know that there are resources for you. Your healthcare team consists not only of your, the physicians treating you, but the entire team, the nurses, the patient navigators, the social workers, so many people on that team that can, the physical therapists, um, just a dietitian. There's so many people on those teams that can help you, and that's really important to be aware of as well. Um, so I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.